Welcome back to the God Box Cafe, where no one could accuse us of being silent. And, of course, we always encourage your feedback, particularly now when everyone's voice should be heard regarding the events of the day on a global scale. Speaking of harbingers of truth, we have Alan Watt back. Always a pleasure to interview Alan. Please pay attention to every word he says because it all has relevance to each and every one of you, regardless of what chair you're sitting in, in what country, and at what point in time. As we do not have any sponsors, we have the creative freedom to speak to whom we will and to speak about things that we will. So we are at liberty to discuss anything and everything, and I am so fortunate once again to welcome Alan Watts to the God Box Cafe after a long, long time. Welcome back, Alan. It's a pleasure. I'd like to share a number of observations that I've made since last we spoke. So much has gone on, and I'm afraid if you would concur with me based on what I'm going to be telling you, it could uh, very well be that the ante has been upped considerably based on the agendas. And I would like, I don't know if like is the right word, I would consider an appropriate analogy to call you the canary in the coal mine of the collective here. And so long as you sing your song, unfortunate and depressing as it may be, then we still have a hope of some kind of a future if we pick up our bootstraps. I just recently watched a film, Alan, called To Kill a King, and it was done by a British production company with Tim Roth starring in the role of Oliver Cromwell. And you immediately came to mind because I was thinking to myself, here was a man, historically, who overthrew a despotic, tyrannical monarchy which was exploiting the masses and literally turned things over, but gained nothing by it in the long run because the people, once the revolution occurred, they didn't quite grasp what the change in this foundation of power was and they weren't ready for what he was presenting to them. And I think you're confronted with the same thing as we speak. So I'm just wondering, are there times where you might consider that the onus is on every one of us to turn around and say no, say no to the restrictions on our freedoms, say no to the infringements that are happening. You're announcing those, yet what will it take for the vast majority of people to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to let this happen? It's similar to, in some respects, the days of Cromwell. The vast population had never had freedom. And to be honest with you, they didn't have even an idea of what freedom really was. They were serfs. They come out of a feudal system. And they were serfs, they were bought and sold with the land. And this new system that came in, really, Cromwell was still catering towards a landed a gentry, you might say. Therefore, the public themselves were out of the picture. They didn't have a say in the big picture. 
And in reality, he was replacing one system with another ready-made system, which they had no input into either. Very similar to the American Revolution, where really a small band of the largest landholders got together and drafted up a constitution and then announced to the people that they'd given it to them. But the public have never, ever had a say in which direction they're going. In other regimes, like the communist regimes, the Soviet regime, it was no different. Intelligentsia, printing presses were a big part of it. But there's also moneyed boys behind it too. They were financing it into being. And the general public really hadn't a concept of the big, big picture. They had this big idea of freedom to do as they wished. And as we know, once the regime comes in, it's anything but. You have a regulated system where people you'll never meet decide the big problems of life and even how you're going to live it and perhaps even what you work at. So the public generally across the world have never really had this thing called freedom. Out of that you had the anarchist movements and their idea was initially that if this is all right for you, then so be it. It might not be always all right for you. You might change your mind and go off and do something else and nothing should stand in your way. And anything that did stand in your way, you'd simply remove, get round, or destroy. So here we are at this stage of the game, and nothing has really changed. We're always run by a small dominant minority, as Aldo Huxley and others have called it. And Plato had his own description 2,300 years ago of this ruling elite. It has changed. So, you see, we're in a commercialized monetary system, this thing called money is fake exchange, is a substitute for barter. Therefore, those who always control money are the dominant minority. Those who profit from that system, they're on the outer fringes of the dominant minority. They're still included. And then, according to your wealth status, will also give you your, your particular power status within a society. The public don't have that. The Western world especially was brought up out of feudalism into a noble-only democracy up until World War I. The average person couldn't vote in Britain and most of Europe until the war was actually underway and they were losing so many people. So they offered that as bait to people that they'd have a say in their own affairs. But it never really was that way at all. You just simply offered parties. And once the party system took off, that negates democracy because democracy is based on you sending your representative from your area or community to a parliamentary system to speak on your behalf. And we always find out once they go to, to the party, they'll say, well, we know what we need for you, for your area. can't go that way because I must vote with the party. Democracy is a, a joke in a sense. And this is controlled, it's deliberately set up this way by the, the dominant minority to always hold on to power. The future doesn't just, we don't stumble into the future. The future is planned meticulously by think tanks which comprise part of a parallel government. And Professor Carl Quigley wrote about this parallel government, which he was the historian for. And that was the Council on Foreign Relations for the U.S. Whereas in Britain and the Commonwealth countries, the Royal Institute for International Affairs and what the elite did was to give, when they gave the public what they thought was democracy, uh, a, a sort of placebo to keep us quiet and hopeful. We're always hopeful every four or five years that things will get better when we vote someone else in. 
but the parallel government was meant to get the agenda always underway, always rolling towards where the elite wanted it to go. And Quigley wrote about this. Margaret Thatcher discussed this when she gave her world tour. The world tour, part of it was done in Massey Hall here in Ontario, and the title of the tour was called The New World Order. She said, I belong to this parallel government. And she says, all ex-ministers and presidents belong to it as well. She says, we comprise a system where we all know each other, we're not responsible to the public, and therefore we can get things done. Democracy is too untidy. Now, if you go into one of the biggest think tanks on this whole agenda, it's called the Club of Rome. Uh, their job is a premier club. Their job is to look towards the future, take trends and so on, find out how they can bring those trends into their line of thinking, their pre-planned agenda, and make it work for them. They then come up with ideas to control the whole world in a global society, and they put these ideas out to the lesser think tanks and the round table societies, which then put them into operation. In the Club of Rome's books, especially one that was called The First Global Revolution, written by the founders of the Club of Rome and published in the 1990s, they said that back in the 1970s, 72, I think it was, they were looking at ways to get the whole of society in the world to work together. And they found that the public only accept total authority and demands upon them, heavy demands upon them, during times of war. Therefore, they said to bring in a global society, they need a warfare scenario. And warfare, remember, brings down into it rationing. It brings new levels of bureaucracy to deal with farming, everything that society needs, industry, and so on. And they also said that democracy was too cumbersome and slow. Same thing as the Royal Institute of International Affairs, with whom they work. And they said that they'd have to, because there's too many competing and conflicting parties within democracy, nothing would get done. At least it would be very, very slow, too slow for them. Therefore, they looked upon all the systems in the world to see what, what they favored most, what worked better along in the, the way of their agenda, and in their mode of thinking for the agenda. And they said they favored collectivism, which they meant Sovietization. Therefore, they chose a Sovietized world that they would bring in across the whole planet using the Soviet techniques where non-governmental organizations technically would appear to be making demands upon government and the governments would be only too happy to comply. Now, the Soviet system was made up. In fact, Soviet means ruled by councils. But if you look at the Soviet system, the public didn't elect the heads of these councils that supposedly spoke for them, that the Politburo did in the Western world, it works exactly the same way, except the big foundations, like the Club of Rome, like the Rockefeller Foundation, like the whole host. There's hundreds and hundreds of them who all work together. And that's part of the parallel government, by the way, to get around democracy. They fund the NGOs into existence. These are not grassroots organizations. These are big organizations that appear to be grassroots to the public. And they network together to shape the world to bring into this new globalist society which they're now calling not Sovietization or communism they're calling it communitarianism and you'll find that George Bush Sr. 
was the first one in the West to start to use that term in his major speeches. We jump from there to the agenda for the 21st century, a United Nations agenda. Now remembering that the United Nations, as you read their documentation, wasn't set up to be a simple negotiation, a place of negotiation for conflicting parties and nations. It was set up to become world government. And therefore, you have the United Nations gradually taking more and more power. All our laws have been passed in the Western world for the last 40, 50 years have come from the United Nations. And it's then passed into law once it's put on the table in Canada or other countries. Right down to your plumbing and electrical codes, septic system, everything, sewage, water supplies, everything comes from the United Nations. It is set up with corresponding departments that you'll have within a federal nation. And is this in detail delineated within the Agenda 21 documentation? Yes, it is. Uh, This is a 21st century, and they want to bring in a new controlled society with, you've heard of family planning, well, they want global planning. It's a, a world where they want to vastly reduce the numbers. We know from the big foundations that work with them, and look at all the organizations that belong to the United Nations. It is a Sovietized setup, as a Club of Rome said. That's what they favored most to control the people. Sustainability is, is the key. Yeah. Is China supposed to be the shining example of the prototype of where they see the entire world evolving into? As I sat there horrified to watch the Beijing Olympics when the Chinese army came in. My mother lived through World War II and she described the SS uh, officers that invaded and the Chinese army looked identical. They were in fact walking as though they were all completely Nazi programmed. It just sent shivers up and down my spine. I didn't even live through the war, but it just brought back all of the things that my mother had spoken about in terms of the horrors of that kind of uh, fascism. I think there was an article in McLean's by Maurice Strong, who, based on my listening to, to your episodes on Cutting Through the Matrix, I've been paying quite a lot more attention to, and he was singing praises where China was concerned. So that in and of itself is a clue as to what their plans are, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. He's an interesting man, Morris Strong, too, because he was picked up very early on by the Rockefeller Foundation and groomed for his role in life. He claims himself that he was born into the tail end of the Great Depression, and because of that, he didn't come out looking for more rights and better rights for the people and so on. He looked upon the other problems, the financial problems and so on, and really, when you look into his mentality it falls in to the fascist system. So what we're looking at here are groups of people, foundations, this parallel government that really runs the world, and they do. They make plans, they are unimpeded by any public input or objection, and they work quietly towards it, they network together, and they technically are the rulers of this agenda and the world. And they believe in themselves. When they talk amongst each other, they'll talk as though they were benevolent dictators. That's how they basically refer to themselves. They believe they are the most evolved types. They believe that the rest of the people haven't caught up genetically to them. They're really into genetics in a big way. This has a lot to do with fascism, as you say. And all socialist systems become fascist. I mean, that's just the way they are. 
It doesn't matter if it's called right-wing or left-wing. When you have big business and money combined with governments, big corporations lobbying government, you technically have a fascist system right there. And that's what we have. And they bring on board a lot of people who work in different areas of society, mainly for social change, which they, of course, direct, where they want a workable, planned society. They claim that all the ills of the past happened because people were all doing their own thing. And they said that causes corruption and disharmony. Therefore, school to work, for instance, is a good way of getting people into the right jobs for them. Uh, they will regulate how many jobs there will be in a certain area, how many people they need. But ultimately, over the course of this hundred years, and remember what that speech was made to after 9-11, this is a hundred years war. Now, it doesn't take a hundred years to knock out the Middle East. This is a hundred years to bring in this new habitat area system, a reduced population, a planned society where you'll be born for a task, a pre-designated task, if they need you. And you won't be born if they don't. Or if they say that you're genetically inferior, and that's going to be the big stick that's coming. It's actually getting pushed right now. We're hearing it from all the magazines and talk shows and so on. If they claim that you have defective genes, you're not quite up to par, or you may have defective genes, uh, you wouldn't be out of the running uh, altogether. And eventually, science itself will dictate who will live and who will die. This is all part of the big picture that Maurice Strong believes in. He believes that part of the problem with poverty is that there are too many poor people. That's how you eradicate poverty. You eradicate the poor. That's basically it. And they all believe the same thing at the top. They claim there's too many of the useless eaters, as Lord Bertrand Russell called them. And he also worked for the same foundations and this parallel government. And in a post-industrial society, and we're even post-technological, we don't produce technology. China does all of that. It was set up. China was set up by the West to do all of this, to take over. And the West was only to be a service-type economy until the population gradually, maybe not so gradually, is reduced. Therefore, they bring in these habitat areas as an interim measure. Now, it's interesting, too, when you look at the whole sustainability question and when you do research and to how far back they started to use the term of sustainability, it goes right back again to the setting up of the League of Nations, which transformed into the United Nations. The League of Nations used the term over and over, sustainability for the planet. But going back even further, you can find the same thing cropping up in the French Revolution or just after it. Because the French Revolution it was not a spontaneous event. It was not the peasants uh, rising up. As I say, the mob will always follow those who lead them and who say the right things, great speeches and so on, and give them promises. But it took years to foment and organize to get the French Revolution on the go. This is where you go in through the foundations again and what they used to call Freemasonry because they had coffee houses all over the place. There were Masonic coffee houses in France and other countries, and that's where the Masons themselves, in their own books, admit that they, they discussed their plans for revolution. And they were all taught, too, in Freemasonry, that they'd bring in a brave new world. Again, a planned society. And then after the French Revolution, or when it was going on, 
most of the public don't realize that they were setting up a socialist system very similar to the modern system with habitat areas and, again, mathematicians and professionals were getting into the act uh, for the first time using statistics. And the idea was to reduce the population, and it took vast amounts of peasantry across France, and they would they killed them off and in order to reduce what they called uh, the burgeoning overpopulation of the poor. They, they used to put people in boats. Hundreds and hundreds of people would be put in boats, and they'd sink them with cannon to get rid oh, of them. Oh, dear God. Because they planned the population ratio for each province and how many farmers they'd need and how many extra peasantry they did not need. And so they, you're looking at the same type of planned society done in a more cruder form than today. Today it's more slicker. Today we've had really 60 years, 70 years of ongoing propaganda to reduce the population. We've been given the services, what they call services, to reduce the population. What's interesting is that Lenin himself said that the West and the world will be encouraged to set up services. And we forget that the health service was a service, now it's an authority. It's the same with the police and all these other services. They are now authorities. And Lenin said that would happen. Well, I had to provide a notarized piece of paper because I would not allow my son. Uh, they refused to have him graduate without having a booster shot for something ludicrous like diphtheria mm -hmm. and polio. And I refused to have him have the booster shot. So I had to go to a, a notary public and get a piece of paper signed indicating that I was objecting where my own belief systems were concerned. I, I didn't care what I had to say. I would say it even if it meant yanking him out of school. I had no intention of having him immunized for anything else, especially since diphtheria. I mean, I don't know of any outbreaks in diphtheria in Toronto, and he's not planning to go anywhere where it may be dominant, where Southeast Asia or wherever it might be occurring as we speak. So I said, no, I'm not going to have him have a booster. And so I had to pay $50 for this piece of paper where I was granted immunity from him taking these shots. And he did indeed graduate, and I managed to dodge that bullet. But here I'm going to cry on your shoulder a bit because my son... Uh, is an incredibly talented musician, and given a few more years of study, he could almost be as good as you are with guitar playing. But he has turned around, and based on what he himself has experienced, it's not me being older and wiser, because I, I can't even claim that I'm older and wiser. I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow in this world, let alone five years from now. So the advice I could give him as a parent is minimal, because all I can do is just keep my hand on the pulse of what's going on. But when he was turning around and making a choice as to what he wants to do with the rest of his life, music he completely opted out of, largely because he said, I don't want to be a rock star. I don't want to crank out albums for some label. I'm not going to work for the man in that regard. So he said, the music I do for myself. And if people want to come and hear me play, that's great. If they don't, I don't really care. So what he ended up choosing to do instead, he's now apprenticing with a school bus repair outlet. So in effect, he's put on the yoke of an indentured servant, and it chokes me up to just even say that, and uh, act as a grease monkey fixing motors and replacing light bulbs in school buses until such time as even that becomes null and void. So this is the state of affairs where I'm at, and I'm actually glad he's out of the school because they now have an armed policeman there every single day. And we're talking about a relatively affluent suburban Toronto area that's 
predominantly occupied by lawyers and doctors and accountants. So we're not talking about the inner city urban blight. We're talking about extremely wealthy people on the whole. I mean, they're not gentry, but they're, let's call them bourgeoisie for want of a better term. They're children. I think because of the fact that they have everything, materially speaking, are bored out of their minds, don't know what to do with themselves. My son is the first one to say, we're a lost generation. We have no one to look up to. There's no leadership here. We don't care about the elections because it's all bogus anyway. So he was born awake. Our conversations at the table are always in relation to these types of topics. And he's not conforming, yet I I don't know from a hope standpoint where he even sees himself 10 or 15 years from now. Mm -hmm. Well, I understand it because so much warfare has gone on against the family unit uh, in particular for many, many years. And that was essential to get this agenda through because we don't realize that this parallel government which also has royalty and aristocracy and so on, who who never, ever believed that the public were going to be given democracy. So they set up their parallel government system. Um, Many of them who worked for it, like Lord Bertrand Russell, wrote about this as far back as the 1920s. And he he said in one of the books was called Education and the Good Life. And you have to understand the coding they, they use. They have different meanings for themselves. But he did set up experimental schools and found ways basically to dissociate the children from their parents. That was the whole idea of it. And to find a way of social indoctrination, a scientific indoctrination, he called it, which would make sure that the children wouldn't emulate their parents' ways, which were called contaminated. Interesting, he was using the same terminology as communism was using when it came to culture being learned by the child from their parents. And he said eventually that if we can make daycare and kindergarten the norm and get the children early, he said even for three or four hours per day with scientific indoctrination, he says we now, in the 1920s, he says we now can override any input or moral standards that the parents might try to pass on to their children. Eventually the state would give the morality to the children. And you're talking about armed security guards and so on. Well, see, that's part of the outcome of it, the school shootings, the violence, all of that. The children were given their own culture, what they think is their own culture. And that goes through music and rock and all the rest of it. That's a managed system. The culture industry is completely managed. It's not spontaneous. Teenagers do not dream this up. (laughs) Neither do they dream up their fashions either. And if you go back as far as Plato's Republic and his other writings, he talks about culture industry. And he calls it an industry with fashion industry and so on, and how it works together with music and drama to influence the young, and how you can guide society along through culture creation. Well, that's what Bertrand Russell was also talking about. He dealt with the educational system that would bypass the parental inputs so that no contaminated thoughts from the old ways would be passed on, old morality, etc. Well, the culture industry took over from there and from school and downloaded the children with what they thought was their own generation's culture. There's nothing further from the truth. Uh, They've never had their own generation's culture. It was just something that was made up for them to follow, which they do very well. 
Oh, there's ample proof of that. And I'm actually noticing as well, there's a lot of billboards, and it seems that David Suzuki is one of the front runners for this, where he is creating ecological Nazis out of these children, where they're encouraged to spy on each other and on their parents, uh, where any types of violations are concerned, to report to the authorities anything that could constitute uh, an ecological faux pas. So, yeah. so this in and of itself is horrifying because there is a, a holier-than-thou perspective that's being drummed into these children, which once again, as you say, is alienating them from their own family and fragmenting them, so they're becoming little spies. They are becoming spies. Again, it's intentional. It's not just Canada. Uh, it came out at the same time as the next move. You'll find that these organizations move in step in all countries at the same time. And... Roddenberry, who did the Star Trek series, was heavily involved shaping the minds of people through what you thought was episodes happening in space. It was all really about the free trade system of the world and, and, and all the rest of it that it entailed. He belonged to NASA, and he got a lot of his projections of the future from the boys at NASA. And he talked about the creation of the first Earth army that would come into being. What you're seeing with the children is what they meant by that, the First Earth Army, where they would give heavy indoctrination to the children. Now, where they got this idea from, and the Club of Rome also talked about this, was watching, not, not watching, because they directed China as they went through what they called the Cultural Revolution. Not just the first main revolution, but the Cultural Revolution. During the Cultural Revolution, they brought up a generation of children that were taught to hate everyone who was older than themselves because they had destroyed the old, their country, basically. They were the gluttons. They were the ones who consumed. They were the wasters. They wasted everything. That's what they were taught. And they dragged the elderly through the streets. Oh, dear Lord. Well, over here you had the whole Timothy Leary never trust anyone over 30. And Timothy Leary has now admitted work for the CIA. And so what you're looking at is a, a planned system and you're right, it's from cartoons. I've got books here that were sent to me, comic books for children. Uh, I've been sent to DVDs that were copied from cartoons, series, and so on. And then the message that the adults have destroyed the planet and they've left nothing for us is being really pushed and promulgated into the minds of the young people. And we are going to see them a, a horror show because, believe you me, fanaticism can be drummed up quite easily. But if you take years to do it through careful scientific indoctrination, you're looking at the same type of cultural revolution as when they turn on their parents. There's a big foundation, again, it's all done through foundations, putting out massive ads in Britain. I think it's called NPower. And they're doing the same thing. They're giving them ID cards for children as spies and telling them how to report on everyone who doesn't do the right thing with garbage and so on, all their neighbors. And we are seeing what George Orwell put in 1984, where the parents were terrified of the children. There was a government-sponsored employment over the summer where 6,000 students were hired to go in their neighborhoods and check to see people who were dog owners, whether the dog owners had licenses. And if they didn't, they were fined. So these yes. children were going door to door making sure that the dog license tags were present. And if they weren't, then they would report as such. And these people were fined large sums of money for not having their dog licenses. Yes. So that's 
the beginning of it, and I'm seeing it firsthand. And I, I do so appreciate this is quite redundant for you because you cover this at great length where your own website is concerned, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. But I appreciate your reiterating these things because in a way, the more often people hear it, the more they may come to realize that this is not theory and it has nothing to do with conspiracy except on the part of those people who are trying to devalue what you and a few other brave souls are doing. And I'd like to see if we can, with the remaining time, I don't profess to say that you are looking through a crystal ball and serving as a prophet of doom or anything. But I would like, based on the fact that you have seen the parallels through history and you have read what a lot of other people are too lazy to crack open because it becomes incredibly tiresome and perhaps too threatening upon their belief system, so they'd rather go into denial or simply can't get out of their complacent state of apathy to look into this in detail and find the documents that you refer to when you speak about this. And perhaps we could do a timeline just so that people understand, not that they go into a state of fear and panic, but that they understand what time we're dealing with here in terms of the actualization of these global programs. We are in the throes of elections in North America, both in the U.S. and here in Canada, which is perhaps voting is irrelevant, I would say, when it comes to exercising one's civil duties, largely because the people who are supposed to be representing you, once they're in power, do what they're told by the robber barons and the bankers. But given the, the events that are happening, I'd like you to perhaps address what's happening where the stock market bailout is concerned and how that, as far as the public is perceiving it, where mass media goes versus what is really behind this. And then just give us kind of a chronology in terms of where you see this headed within the next 10 years or perhaps uh, there's this constant referral to 2012. So I don't know if this is part of the uh, agenda so that people are, are reinforced with the notion of big things changing in 2012. So maybe we can give it that four-year timeline and you could speak to that with regards to global economics, the elections, and what's being introduced within, say, Bill C-51 and Bill C-52 in, in Canada. These are all things that will impact everyone. Well, to me, I, I don't panic because I, I understand by following history how these guys work. And they do everything on a huge scale, every, including spraying the sky. That's quite the project uh, worldwide. Uh, it's always a large-scale agenda. If we go back into the 1800s, you'll find that Karl Marx talked about this system when he was living and being financed in London, England where everything came from, really. Hmm. And he talked about a united Europe that would be the first united system, a sort of collection of provinces, another called a region. And that would be followed eventually by a united Americas and very quickly afterwards by a Pacific Rim conglomerate. And that's happening. Of course, that's happening. Europe's already done it. We are doing it now. Since 2005 on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation TV, uh, we saw the first open, that's the key to it, it was the first open signing of integration of the Americas by the Prime Ministers and the President of the U.S. They said that they had another few to go to 2010, and then the Americas is totally integrated. And sure enough, they've been signing uh, the same thing every year, further integration, what they called in Europe when they were doing it, closer ties. That was a code term they used for complete integration. Uh, that's happening, too, with the Pacific Rim region. 
that they have parliament set up for every block, trading block. And I think they even discussed Montreal during the free trade negotiations back in the late 80s for Canada. They set it up in Montreal for the Americas. They also had to bring in a common currency. So what you're seeing now is just, it's real, it's very real as they can crash the economy or control it, control crashes, I call them, whenever they wish, or recessions or inflation. But it's all to get the public ready for big changes. That's the main reason for it. It's a huge drama put on the public so that the public will be terrified and afraid and will be ready to accept their next overture, which will be the presentation of the new moneyed system for the Americas, but they also want to eventually to go into a global currency, which will be all electronic, of course. And, and is this pretty much what has been alluded to as far as the mark of the beast, meaning that if you don't have this subdural microchip, you cannot conduct any type of commerce? Uh, that, that will come, but again, it's a, the trainers, as you train animals, you don't spook an animal by going all the way to slaughter. You don't slaughter animals in front of the rest of the herd either. You take them away from the herd. You acclimatize the public to every step that you want them to go. That way you can control them. You don't lose control. So we're being trained now that the America's day as the rulers or the policemen of the world, the big economic powerhouse, are declining. We have to be trained into that way to lower our standards of living drastically incredibly, in fact, if you listen to Maurice Strong and others of his ilk, and to sustainability. So this is all the rumblings of what that's about. If they want to toss more paper into circulation, they will. They could do it forever if they wanted to. Or they can simply start bringing it into the banks, less money circulating, and then you have a depression. But one way or another, they're bringing us through a form of depression and inflation to train us get ready to accept the next system which will be offered to us. Now, I was looking at a, a Wendy Mesley show from 1998, and she's very good for pushing out uh, the next parts of the agenda before anyone else. She's a program on Canada here, CBC, mm-hmm. and she was talking to the manufacturers of the new ID card back in 1998. And this card, of course, has... I know from the British version, the card has the chip, which will also eventually become your bank card as well. Everything about you is in there, including your bank account. Um, Well, she was talking to uh, one of the men for Canada, this big company that's going to distribute the ID cards. And remember, this is before 9-11, 2001. Yes. (laughs) And they were already IDing, giving clear passes. We think it's a new name. No, they were giving clear passes back in 1998 to people who want to cross the border. They're already introducing it then. But she said to the man, what makes you think that people will accept all of this intrusion and fingerprinting and iris scans and so on? And he said, the public will be given no option. If you are obligated to travel, you will have to comply. You'll have to comply, but that also will go for buying and selling and everything you need to live. That's where it's supposed to go. Now, that did break out in Britain before 2001 again, and the people turned it down. They couldn't understand why their government was forcing this ID card on them with space for their bank account when nothing in the world of a major event scale was happening. So 9-11-2001 was an essential thing to happen to ram all of this through. That was the excuse we've been given to ram all this under the guise of terrorism and safety or having our rights taken away. But it's really 
to bring in something that was already on the go, and that's a totally controlled society. And when you talk about the mark of the beast, they discussed this at the Loyola meeting, the Loyola University in the States, the World Science meeting in 2001. They've had one every year since. They discussed an implantable chip, uh, which is already there. They said they only have to convince the public now to accept it. And how they would do it would be to promote it through movies and novels and even cartoons. That's already happened. A series of movies came out right after it uh, with the chip in it. One was called The Cutter, I think it was, with Robin Williams. Hmm. Uh, And this ties in. This is an important part of it. You see, your specific ID is to tie in with what will be your new Sovietized area. People think it's to do with crossing borders and so on. Eventually, you won't be able to move out of your region or your community and your new communitarian system, your habitat system. Eventually, down the road, maybe 15 years, you won't be able to move out of your community without special permission. People think that free trade with the free flow of labor, which is written into the Charter for the Americas, the Summit of the Americas and the United Nations, They think that's a good thing. It sounds good, like everything else sounds good. But it's really limited trade only to authorized international corporations. And the new type of travel will be essential travel only over borders for people and executives that are required by those corporations. It's not for the average person at all. That's what you find out when you go really into the writings about it. So it sounds wonderful to the public, What's wrong with that? Until you look, it's actually restrictions for everything. Now, the chip has already been tested out in Spain and in Holland in nightclubs to see if the young would go for it. This particular one is implantable under the skin. You join the club. I think it's the BACA club, they call it. It's huh. actually based in California, but they have them over in Europe. And you can pay up uh, an account in advance. It's put into the chip. It's like a, a debit card, and your arm is scanned, and your drinks, etc., is deducted from your account. So they've used it already in that respect. They're using it in more and more of these clubs to get the youth used to having this without having to carry them. And a lot of them think it's fantastic. They don't need to carry money or even their card and so on. It's also given snob appeal because depending on the size of the account, you can have gold, platinum, and all the rest of it. And they make sure these clubs have, are the sexiest clubs, the best-looking dancers and so on, to get the people into it, and it's working very well. The guy, by the way, who's the CEO of this organization, in his own writings, that's been published in the newspaper, he worked for the NSA prior to coming into this, the National huh. Security Agency. So this is the agenda for the future, is to be a totally controlled society, Step by step through different phases of it, including the chip, is only one phase until they go through genetic engineering into transhumanism. And if you look up the websites on the big transhumanist societies, look at them. Again, heavily founded by the foundations, stacked with professors of all kinds and researchers of all kinds, all the top people, where they plan to eventually, over the course of the century, bring in a new type of human society. They'll be enhanced, they call it. But when you tie that in with the Loyola science meeting to do with the chip, they might be very physically superior, but in the Loyola University, they said it'll be the end of individuality as you know it because 
once this chip is inserted, you're talking about inside the brain. At yes, once. indeed. That's utterly yep. Borg to, yes. to use the, the Star Trek. It's uh, You will be assimilated and resistance is futile. Yes, they said it will be impossible for anyone to think of themselves as a separate, distinct individual. That will be gone. And so therefore the elite will achieve their objective. Now remember, the elite themselves will not use this chipping technique on themselves. That's written into their own documentation. Arthur Kessler mentioned that he worked, now it's declassified, there's books out on it, he worked for MI5 and 6. We find the writings by Charles Galton Darwin, the grandson of Charles Darwin in, in 1980s, he wrote the book in a million years. He also said, we, the elite, will not change ourselves. We must retain our ability for self-preservation, but the masses won't need it because the state will be making all their decisions for them. It's very arrogant. Uh, to be honest with you, there's no reason why they can't pull it off. They do need our compliance. That's the only thing that they need, is our compliance. And the public have all of these ideas marketed to them to make them familiar with them, but they don't tell you all of the story. Survival here depends on our ability to want to retain individuality. If you give a society a depressing culture, a depressing time of misery, all the values have gone down the drain, even the old religions, anything that used to hang on to to give them hope has been pretty well destroyed. We're told that science now rules. This is the age of science. Science is a cold master. It has no compassion. In fact, really, it has no humanity in it. It's simply what is functional, what is not functional for the time. That's the system we're going into, and we have to decide ourselves what we are. Are we really human? What does it mean to be fully human? Uh, we have to regain those human qualities that kept us alive for all this time, or it's game over. We're literally fighting not just for ourselves, but for all the previous generations that were abused and used for their wars of glory and gain, and for all those who are yet to come. If these boys have their way, they'll have a planned society, and in fact there'll be no parenthood as such as we know it. They will create new types of humans to serve them better at the top. That's the idea of this whole agenda. Well, we've got biological warfare in terms of being bombarded in the air and the water we drink and the food we eat. It's all toxic and the sterility levels are astronomically high in a very short span of time. The ratio of cancer patients... Yeah, that's um, intentional too, though. Uh, I was looking at some of the writings of some of the CFR and one of the professors said back uh, 30 years ago about ways of reducing the population, he said, well, what's wrong with cancer? They might as well die of cancer as, as anything else. What's really ironic, Alan, is I've done a few of my own forays into the backgrounds of these people who are so-called the ruling elite. And irony of irony, a lot of their offspring were either, say, the Darwin, Charles Darwin, in, in terms of children, I think a couple of them committed suicide. One went completely mad. So if these are supposedly genetically superior people, I can't see that bearing witness to what their children end up doing and being doesn't speak very highly for them from a chromosomal standpoint. But is there any possibility that given the fact that they know no shame, they know no greed, that they're psychopaths in no unquestionable terms, is it possible that there would be some infighting where they would basically be arguing amongst themselves and not have a consensus of opinion and perhaps by the divide and conquer scenario, say the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers just can't agree anymore, is it possible that 
it could crumble from there, and that might be our opportunity to turn around. And they're, they're also very much ritualistically oriented and very concerned with occult things. So that could potentially be their Achilles heel, could it not? It's possible. You see, they do cooperate and they can cooperate for a long, long period, even centuries, as long as they're all benefiting. But now that they see their goal coming into view, which is a world government, and I always say that I use the allegory of a throne, a throne of the world, where really you're going to have someone appointed as the CEO or king of the planet one day, and not too far off in the future. And for a psychopath, that's an awfully alluring magnetic thing. They seek power. Mm-hmm. They want to go down in history. It's very important to them to be remembered in history, terribly important. That is when they'll probably start to have infighting because there's only going to be one top CEO here and they all want to be king of the world. That's probably when they'll start. However, when the Titans fight, especially when they have weaponry as they have today, like plasma weaponry and all of this, and EMP pulsation technology, a lot of people die when titans fight. The little people get stood upon and stomped. And that's the problem, too. These guys truly don't care how many people they take with them, you know. Mm. I can remember Begin when he was prime minister of Israel. And he said, he, he really was going over the edge, and he said, if Israel goes, we'll take the planet with us. And they nicknamed that the Samson Complex. But he wasn't the first to use that. Another psychopath, and that was Adolf Hitler, said at the end, when Russia and the U.S. and Britain were coming in into Berlin, he said he'd take all of Germany down with them. He said if the German people could not rule the world, then they were not fit to live. Well, that's a standard psychopathic rationalization coupled with eugenics, because they all believe in eugenics. All of the present day are no different from the Nazi believers. They believe that they have the right of might, and those who have that particular right will survive. If they can't survive, then it's just too bad to grieve over them. So it's a horrific show that's coming up. It's actually happening. When you look at the instance of disease that's occurred since 1950 onwards, it's skyrocketed, as you see, with cancers and autism. Everything that came along with the big push and the start of mass inoculations for everything, we have inoculations now for so many things which are supposed to be eradicated from the planet. We're still being inoculated for them. So they claim. I have my own suspicions as to what the inoculator is with. I have the same suspicions as you do because I work for a radiologist, and you can well imagine, <laughs> interestingly enough, just to add my own personal views on this, my son is working at Canpar just moving boxes from a warehouse into a truck, and he makes more money than I do being a medical receptionist. And the doctor who I work for is pretty standard when it comes to the more people that he can radiate in any given day, the happier he is because he can do more billing and then he can yeah. go on cruises. And uh, who cares if there's... You know, I see every single day people walking in, getting radiated because their digestive systems are completely compromised. Yeah. Their That's immune it. systems are virtually non-existent, and I see this on a daily basis, and it's exhausting and incredibly depressing. I am witnessing this firsthand personally, so I completely concur with you from that standpoint. One thing I do want, we're, we're running rapidly out of time. I've been watching, it's the big fish eats the little fish scenario here again, and simply because we still have the internet and I need to get this information out to as many people as possible, as do you. 
I saw Yahoo and Google just swallowing up all kinds of services, left, right, and center. Do you see the potential? And I've read in some particular circulations among the lists that I link to that the possibility of free internet is soon going to be rendered null and void and that some massive company like Google or Yahoo will absorb all of the browsers and every other potential servers out there, and then you will have to pay for every single click that you do on the web so information will no longer be accessible or free. That's correct. Again, it was an idea that was born in Canada, by the way, a few years ago when they had their first United Nations conference to do with policing the Internet. What they meant was the eradication of contrary sites, contrary to the agenda, and with Internet 3 coming up, and I gave a talk on the founder of the Internet system, the World Wide Web, who now has hundreds of big corporations backing him to do with the coming out with the new system, uh, Internet 3, I think they call it. And the fact is that it's going to be divvied up amongst the big providers, the mainstream media, in other words, are going to get the first grabs at things. Everything else will be pay-as-you-view, Small sites will be eradicated, but they're also going to make it impossible for you to pull up sites that they deem politically incorrect. That was by the founder of the World Wide Web. He said that. So if they label you as undesirable, giving out what he claims is false information to mislead the public, they'll just pull your site. I read the document from the British newspapers on my website last week. If you could email me that, I will put that link up uh, on the show notes when I post this interview. So do you have a time frame on that, Alan? Do you know when this whole thing will become a reality? Again, 2010 and then 2012. 2012, they want the United Nations to step up and declare world government because of, of world emergencies. 2010, of course, Canada's be amalgamated with the U.S. Totally, that's the finish of it. That's the last signature. And therefore... It could be 2010, 2012. I think the guy who set up this Internet system talked about 2010. So that's our window right there in terms of what we can say and what we can do, speaking freely amongst ourselves on a global level. Yes. In fact, someone just emailed me something to do with the Norton antivirus program that you get for your computer. Right. And this is right after I gave the talk from the founder of the WWW, the World Wide Web, and already it's, it's saying you do not want to look at this site. It is deemed undesirable. So they've already put some of it into motion to get us used to it. But when they bring in the new system in 2010, this new policing body, and it is a policing body this man belongs to with all the big corporations and the NSA is one of the corporations backing this new system that he suggested. They will pull your site from the web. You won't be able to put anything up at all. And so what recourse do we have, given that we have the alert, you've warned everyone, can we just by the uproar of solidarity among the masses say, no, we will not comply, can that possibly be reversed or prevented? Uh, they've already thought all of this out. You see, they always plan things like a chessboard, how the public will react, how they will get past the reaction and so on. And they plan a massive advertising campaign to revamp and show you this new wonderful wonderland of Internet 3. And they hope by marketing alone, because they now have the public addicted to constant data, not the truth, but just data. Yes. They think they'll continue to use the Internet and go into the mainstream, and that's all that we'll have. 
and by massive marketing and giving them more titillation, probably a bit more sex and so on, the public will continue to use it. That's how they plan to overcome this. As far as public objection, you need organization to do it, and that's it. That's the key to everything is organization. The public don't have organization. When they do get it, it's generally set out by the other side, and it collapses at the end or goes off on a different tangent to mislead us. We don't have enough real, genuine organizations out there that are willing to stand up and fight for it. That's very true. And I think also, Alan, since so many of us are living on a hand-to-mouth basis and we're completely in survival mode, you get up, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you watch television, you go to sleep, you get up, you go to work. It's the same thing. And nobody wants to hear about what could then possibly happen as far as our liberties being removed carefully one at a time. I've spoken to so many people when it comes to, I I wouldn't say rallying the troops because I've avoided that. You just draw attention to yourself and then you defeat your own purpose by being locked up as both my parents were, voicing their political concerns about these types of dictatorial systems. But it's a question of getting people off their collective indifferent arses and doing something about it, not just saying, I can't be bothered. It's not going to affect me. I just have enough trouble paying for my rent. I mean, I looked at my books for last month, and believe me, between two earnings, we pay rent, we pay the utilities, we pay for gas, and we pay for food. There is virtually nothing left over after that. That's right. So trying to get people to to wake up in that kind of situation, I mean, even if they are awake, Part of them just says, I can barely make it the way things stand now. I'm not about to turn around and risk hearth and home to speak out my concerns. If I do that, they're just going to turn around and center me and use me as an example and punish me even more. So there is a lot of that going on, too. There's no doubt about it. If you can depress an economy and get people worrying and scurrying around for pure survival, they will not generally be involved in any long-term, any long-range goals their basic concern is immediate survival. And also, too, people are too complacent now. We've been trained. We've had 50 years or 60 years of training the public. And again, Bertrand Russell goes into this technique, and they call it technique. They've trained the public to listen to experts. Don't worry about the big problems of the world. There are special people above you that deal with all of that. Just leave it to them and be good little children and play. That's basically how we've been trained, and unfortunately, intergenerationally for the last 50, 60 years, it's worked. We're seeing the product of it today. We've also seen the division of society that's not cohesive anymore. If you destroy the family unit, there's no community, really. If you have a community, it's just a bunch of prisoners all inside the same pen. Yes, that whole notion of clan and the tribal sticking together against a common foe, that, that seems to be almost rendered null and void because everyone's spying on each other within their own family unit. As my last observation, I just wanted to share with you, Alan, I've had a chance to look at some architectural indications of where the wealth lies, and I just wanted to point out a couple of things that I've seen and get your feedback on that, and then we'll let you go. There are the Patronus Towers in Kuala Lumpur, which is eerily like the twin towers that were taken down at 9-11. And then you've got this extraordinary hotel that looks like a sail that was built in Dubai. These are like glittering jewels now in another part of the world, which I've only had the opportunity to view in still photos. Is that where the trail is? Would you say that's where the money lies now? 
Yes, it does. They love to build uh, symbols for moving on. If you go through uh, this occult system, when the Rothschilds were given, I call it given the Bank of England, I think they were brought over, to be honest with you, to take over uh, because they were better trained at this new scam. The British government also brought in, brought over from Egypt an obelisk. And they paid a lot of money and they actually encased it in a steel, they, they made a special shipping compartment that was floated across the sea all the way to London, England and erected. We find that around the same time, so this is connected to it by the way, going back to the days of Constantine. In fact, Constantine sent one of his sons to Egypt to get one of those obelisks as well and he put it in the circus in Rome. And when they were setting up the one for the Rothschilds, for the big banking group, and it's faced by the four major banks, it's, it's surrounded by the four major banks in London. In Rome, they moved the one from the circus and put it in front of the Vatican. And then and when New York was being built up to become the new financial power, they brought one over and put it in the Great Park there from Egypt. And of course, in the U.S. also had a new one, and that was Washington's Monument. They loved this symbol that they've used down through the ages. And the Twin Towers, of course, is a symbol of two of them, the male and the female, the Jachim and the Boaz, as they say in Masonry, the male and the female, the fire and the water. So, yeah, you're quite right. The, the one in Kuala Lumpur, uh, I think, is joined as well. It is. Yes, and if you look at what it's joined with, it's actually a compass coming down. Wow, I it's hadn't even compass. seen that. Yeah, so they use their symbols all down through the ages, and you're right, whenever they put up these big, brand new monuments, they're showing you their new place or their new headquarters of operation. That's where the money is, yeah. Okay, well, that's one way to follow where the action is, no doubt. The other is to follow Alan. Alan, please tell us once again where people can look to get information on a daily basis from you. Yes, you can go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website and there's hundreds of talks you can download for free and go over. Where I try to fit all this together, I piece it together for the people to try and give them shortcuts to understanding. And we really need shortcuts today because we don't have the time that previous generations had to pass this information on. And the books you yourself have written too, please, uh, they can order those books online via that site. Yes, I put a series out, the Cutting Through series, to show them the occultic side or part of this, how the symbols are always around you. You grow up living amongst them, and you don't know what they mean, but why is it so important for the to have these symbols all around you? And I also give you some of the codings that they use, and also put out, there's a book now of transcripts, written transcripts of a lot of the shows, and that's a good book to read too, around just staring at the computer and reading. It's much easier to have a book of transcripts where I go through talk after talk, of the ancient history leading up to the present history. So they can find that too on the website. And I can certainly recommend that everyone order that while the opportunity presents itself because you'd have a hard copy so that whatever happens with the internet you have on hand because I don't think they'll be eliminating paper in 2010. So even if all of our technology shuts down, which may not necessarily be a bad thing in terms of the radionics we're bombarded with, the paper will still be yours to keep on file and educate yourself. Could you tell the international listeners where they can find your site that's for people who are outside of North America? Yes, they can go into alanwattsentinel.eu. And again, they can download lots of talks and transcripts and so on from that particular site. Wonderful. Well, Alan, I'll try to bring you on as often as I can within the confines of the time that we have left where free Internet is still accessible. I 
totally appreciate and, and am honored that you're sacrificing your own time and your own personal goals and ambitions towards your own happiness to try to raise the level of awareness of our collective. And I'm so grateful for your being here. It's a pleasure to be here. While we can talk, we must use it. Most definitely. And believe me, my son and a number of his friends are well aware of what you're doing, so you are connecting with the next generation, believe me. That, that's all it's about. That's the whole point of the, of the exercise, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alan. Yeah, thank you, too.